I actually couldn't wait to get into my kitchen in the mornings. I I, I loved getting there hours before any staff came in. So I accomplished so much more, and I prepped for them and making it a lot easier. And I used to say to these guys, listen, I don't ask anything of you during the day, but once 5 o'clock comes, the curtain goes up, it's all restaurant, it's all serious. But I do miss that feeling, that experience, that creativity, forced creativity sometimes. Um, sometimes difficult, sometimes banging your head against the wall to figure out what to do. But, you know, sometimes there, there were, you know, moments of success and triumph and, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just feeling uh, that you're, you are working in a team, that you are working for a certain goal. State, all these kids that you're saying, well, they're iffy workers. We don't know how loyal they are. They stayed till the bitter end. We had waiters that had worked for us 20 years earlier emailing saying, can I come work one shift before it's over? So we had like all-star waiters showing up. Those last two weeks, we did more business in two weeks than we had done in any two-week run in the history of the restaurant. And then we just locked the door. Welcome to Intrinsic, a podcast about the innate value of human beings and the motivation that drives us. I'm your host, Keiko Sono, recording from Socrates, New York. In today's episode, our guests are three former chef owners of iconic restaurants, each unique in its style and cuisine. David Waltak opened his legendary restaurant Chanterelle in Soho with his wife Karen in 1979, when downtown New York was not associated with fine dining. David quickly gained the reputation as the pioneer of contemporary American cuisine, founded in a sophisticated French tradition. He and the restaurant earned a collection of high accolades, including two four-star reviews from the New York Times and four James Beard Awards. On the two fortunate occasions when I got to dine there, I was struck by how welcoming and friendly the whole experience was. I didn't feel intimidated or out of place in any way, as I might have in other high-end restaurants. So I was more than excited when I found out that David and Karen were my neighbors. Because of COVID, they are spending their full seasons this year in the Catskills for the first time. John Novi is certainly a local legend in Hudson Valley. He opened Dupuy Canal House as a young man in a historic stone building in High Falls back in 1969. Four months later, he received a four-star rating by the New York Times critic Craig Claiborne, earning the restaurant a reputation as one of the best in the Hudson Valley until they closed in 2015. John is a quintessential Hudson Valley figure in that he's a wild mix of country, city, simplicity, and sophistication. His restaurant was also a unique marriage of the rustic and high art. Rick Orlando, the famed owner of New World Home Cooking and a familiar face on Food Network, has a large presence in the Hudson Valley culinary circle, not only for his experience as the chef owner, but also for his contribution to the community. He is inquisitive and creative, reflecting what I view as a Woodstock spirit, and has reinvented himself again and again. 
his restaurant was funky and energetic, located right in the middle between Woodstock and Saturdays. The food was always adventurous, with plenty of spices and global flavors. I am truly grateful that they shared their fascinating stories, revealing their deep emotions. This episode is longer than usual, but it's worth it. It's an oral documentation of a particular time in history in New York, Hudson Valley, and Woodstock, as well as delicious insider stories of the industry. But most of all, I am grateful for their passion for the art of cooking and respect for food. Okay, so I'm so honored to have all of you here today. You guys are truly culinary giants, uh, certainly in Hudson Valley and New York City and the capital region. But, you know, you're probably really well known, um, you know, nationwide, if not worldwide. So thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm really honored. Um, so Rick, David and John, I was thinking that instead of having each of you describe what you've done and what you're doing, I thought I would try this. Why don't we go around the table and have each one of you describe somebody else's restaurant, you know, your experience uh, with other person's um, creation and restaurant. Can we do that? Are you game? All right. So um, whoever wants to go first. All right. Well, I'll go first. This is David Waltuck speaking. Um, um, I'll talk a little bit about... uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about John Novi. How about that? Um, so um, I went to the Culinary Institute of America and um, uh, back in the, I guess, yeah, mid-70s. And, uh, and I had heard about the Canal House. Um, and I, I made a couple of special excursions to eat there. And I remember being really uh, taken with the the whole concept of a restaurant out you know out of New York out in a small town doing really interesting food really interesting work and with an ambiance that was really unlike uh, any restaurant that I found in 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 New York and I only went there a couple of times um, but it made an impression on me um, uh, I can say that I also, you know, worked at another couple of restaurants that were out of New York while I was at school. Um, And um, uh, a lot of what stayed with me was the feeling of this is not, you know, um, sort of uh, the kind of haughty, high energy kind of uh, feel that uh, a lot of French restaurants, especially in New York City, uh, had. And, um, you know, uh, I know a little bit more about John and his restaurant uh, from reading about him in a book that I'm in also, which is the Andrew Friedman book about, um, you know, uh, American chefs. It's called Chefs, Drugs and Rock and Roll. Um, it's a good book, um, and it talks a lot about uh, the influence of this this restaurant. And I, I I don't know very much about what you're doing now, John, but I understand that you're still pretty active, and doing some some fun things. Yeah, I, I'm trying to be uh, active as much as I 
possibly can. At this age, I can't believe that I got to be this old. <laughs> and, but, yeah, so, um, but I'm, I'm happy where I am. I, I, I miss the days of the, the, I miss all 51 years, Dave, um, that I put into that house and that, um, that atmosphere. And that kitchen was just very special. And I won't get into it because Kiko is asking us to, to do something different as far as not talking about ourselves. But I have a lot to say. Um, in some instances, not very happy with the outcome of the house, primarily. Um, so that there's a, a lot of um, what went on that really hurt. And I'm trying to work out of that. Um, that hurt. Well, John, we'll definitely get into that. I, you know, we have a lot of time, so. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I won't start it off. Let's get. I want to talk about Rick. <laughs> All right. Um, I admire Rick. I admire his business sense. I admire his personality, his character. Um, I would consider him on the Enneagram scale probably a nine, which <laughs> I am too. <laughs> and um, I, I loved going to his restaurant. It was always very different. And uh, one time uh, when I was married, um, my wife and I had dinner with uh, Rick and his wife. And uh, it was a delight. It was really um, an experience. But the events that you you staged with... Um, uh, with the culinary guys, uh, not Stephen Colpan, but Weiss, uh, Michael Weiss, yeah, Michael Weiss, Most, mostly Weiss, yeah, yeah. That was that was a whole era of your doing that. Long um, lamented days of wine dinner after wine dinner after and, wine yeah, dinner. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we probably Michael and I discussed it. We've probably done over fifty together. That's what over I, the years, and uh, yeah, it was something. I would have surmised. Um, yeah, it was the delight. And I have a quick question for you. What's happened with that building? Uh, it was purchased, uh, uh, I think, January of 19. And the guy who bought it was going to put apartments in it, but now it's just sitting dormant. I still go to the property and pick some of my perennials that I have growing there. I have a whole <laughs> bed of, huge bed of sunchokes. It'll be up in about a month and a half. If anybody oh, needs cool. any sunchokes, let me know. Yeah, yeah. Pretty good. I had a pretty extensive garden there, and a lot of the perennial stuff, the horseradish, the sorrel, I went and harvested my ramps, which I started by the stream. But no, it's just sitting there. I don't know. He said he couldn't find a good contractor, and people ask me all the time, and I say, and no, no, so, you know, I don't know. Not my, not my, not my job anymore. Well, it made a, an excellent commercial location. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was interesting moving from a small space to a big space, and realizing that people will come into your restaurant who don't know who you are just because it's on the main road, which was a whole new experience for us. But I'd like to talk about David a little bit. David and I, David and I had a chat uh, last week, and I told him, sadly, I never, ever went to Chanterelle for numerous reasons. One was when I was in, this, I was in Boston until 80, late 87, early 88, and then was in the city all through 88 into mid 89 when I moved upstate. And when I was in the city, 
um, didn't really have a hell of a lot of money. Uh, I was managing Sugar Reef Restaurant, you know, in the East Village. And I was really, I had gone from working at the Harvest Restaurant in Cambridge to, to managing in New York because I needed, I had a couple of kids, I needed to make some money. But everybody talked about Chanterelle. Chanterelle at that time really was a weirdly iconic place that I'd never been to, that I knew about, that I read about in magazines, that I read about in the newspaper, that when I moved upstate, it was on my A-list of restaurants to go to. And then you know what happens when you open a restaurant upstate? You don't get to go. I mean, it was just like up here. But I, I remember clipping recipes out of, I don't know if it was gourmet or bon appetit. There was something in there that you had done, David, that I remember I had in my little binder. I would clip recipes that I would find in magazines and then uh, try to, you know, mess around with them and, and make them your own as, as chefs do. That's the highest form of flattery. You should know that. Um, but you, you know, and I was really thrilled when I was reading um, Andrew Friedman's book, uh, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, to first encounter John Novi and then to counter, encounter you. Um, but, you know, you just, you, you were an icon. You're one of the people that, when I looked at pictures of your food, I said, you know, I'm probably never going to do that, but I want to eat it. And I never did. And I, I, <laughs> and I miss it. So someday we have to get together and you have to cook for me. But you are right. definitely... And, and your story, you know, and the story in uh, in Friedman's book of how you and your wife started the restaurant hit very close to home. My my brother-in-law, Mike Lenane, and his sister, Susan, who's since passed, came upstate. They kind of were entree upstate, and they opened the Palmer House restaurant in Rensselaerville. And they had a dream of opening this beautiful little French bistro, not in Manhattan, but in the middle of nowhere. But they were from the city. So it was kind of like a similar story of just a couple who decided they wanted to do this thing. And the husband and wife theme of running a restaurant, which my wife and I did also, um, hit close to home to me. So someday we'll just have to look at pictures in your cookbook and eat your food and uh, check me on a little, a little mind trip, yeah. okay? I don't well, have your cookbook. If I can interrupt and say, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a, a similarity, a weird similarity, even though, you know, you guys were out of the city and I was in the city that I think in a way we're all pioneers. Um, you know, and it sounds ridiculous because I opened a restaurant in Soho, but think about Soho in 1979. Right. It was not, it was not where people, there were no restaurants. I mean, there was, there was the Broom Street Bar restaurant. So was Soho Kitchen and Wine Bar open when you opened? Oh, no. No, that was later, oh, right? Later. Yeah, yeah. What uh, year did Chanterelle open? It opened in 1979. Mm -hmm. It did. Yeah. And I was just, I was just two was, years out of high school. It was Frontier. You know, it was like, you know, Soho was not the Soho shopping mall Soho that it is now. Uh, it was it was really like a lot of warehouses and light manufacturing and had, you know, only fairly recently been saved from, uh, you know, Robert Moses uh, tearing it down to put a hallway. Um, I'd be by landmarked and you know it's the same it's sort of the same impulse that leads someone to open a restaurant you know back in the day certainly in Ulster County or you know upstate New York somewhere um, it's it's it, I mean it's it's there's an economic aspect to it but there's also a 
just like let's see what happens kind of aspect you know how many how many people told you you were crazy for trying to open in soho um you know i don't remember people t- i mean i know my parents were terrified <laughs> but, you know they were supportive while i could see that they were you know biting their nails um but it was it was also a very very different time you know and you know a different time and i was i was a I was young, you know, um, and but when I say it was a different time, it was there was a sense of possibility much more so than I think now or, you know, now is a crazy time. But, you know, picture a year ago or two years. Exactly. Ago, but, yeah. You know, it was like, well, if it doesn't work out, you know, I'll, I'll get a job. I mean, it's not like the end of the world. I mean, I, I think it will work out. I hope it works. out. Can I ask you a question? I want to ask you a question because I, I did I did a podcast with Barry Wine a few months ago, and he told me that he opened the Quilted Giraffe for forty thousand dollars. I opened New World Home Cooking. Yeah, I opened New World Home Cooking for thirty five thousand dollars. What kind of budget did it take to open Chanterelle in nineteen seventy nine compared to now? And we're, comp- we're comparing then to now, and the whole balls to the wall of opening a restaurant as opposed to then. It was. It ended up being about a hundred grand. Yeah. But and that's, that was probably, probably a lot. Mm-hmm. We actually, I mean, we ended up. So I mean, this was this was just like blank space. You know, it was a it had been a a bodega, but it was just totally gutted. Um, uh, you know, the the contractor that ended up doing most of the work just decided he really liked us, and so he let us you know pay when we had you know after we opened we paid the rest. You know the the final bit of money that we owed him. You know, we opened with no money in the bank. Yeah, I know that game. I know that game. The weekend we opened was Memorial Day of 93. And we basically just wrote all the checks for the liquor and food and hoped that we made enough business to get them covered <laughs> by Monday. Yes, I know that story. Rick, are you talking about the building on Zena Road? Zena Row, the 1720s haunted stone house that everybody in the world told me that I was out of my crazy mind to put a restaurant in there. But we fell in love with the building. We looked at that building. We got home that night. I said to my wife, the kitchen's too small. I don't like the location. The building is too quirky. The parking lot is not even paved. Let's sign the lease. One of those kind of things, you know. We I don't we, we just just did it. Just did it against against all of my better judgment. We did it. Yeah, let's explain to the listeners uh, what this location is. So this is not right in the middle of Woodstock. It's 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 between Woodstock and Saturday, <laughs> and it's I would say you know it's only about like five minutes out of town, but it's, you know it, around here, yeah, you know, two, two miles out of Woodstock. Um, it's about, it was a mile off Route Twenty Eight, uh, but it was this quirky seventeen twenty stone house that had been a series of roadhouse type restaurants um the person before us had a place called shirley's and there's some rumor that the b-52 song love shack was based on that building because they all used to hang out there in the late 80s it was a late party scene um but again tiny kitchen i had just come from working at a place in a jazz club in albany called justin's which had the tiniest kitchen a 10 burner stove a salad unit and a dish pit, and that was it. And only two people can fit in the kitchen at a time. And I promised myself I wouldn't do that again. 
And when we took over the restaurant on Xena, we were able to get three people in the kitchen. So that was really, really special. You know, the kitchen was about the size of this bedroom I'm in right now. Um, but it, it's a cool house. Uh, Jim Jennings bought it uh, when, when we went out. And he's a great chef. He had Bodark, and now he has the uh, Tinker Taco. But he bought and lives there. He made his home out of it. And I can't imagine living there because, quick ghost story, and John, you have plenty. My wife wouldn't even go back into Dupuy after her experience in your ladies' room <laughs> with the little female ghost. But we were told that the building was haunted. And, you know, I, I spent two or three months in there a lot alone in the evening, scraping and painting and building the kitchen out and doing a lot of the contracting myself. And I, they, the hair on the back of my neck would go up numerous times and people would walk in and say, Ooh, have you met the ghost yet? I'm like, this is the, I'm here. You're going to leave and go home and I'm going to be here all by myself, you know, but I remember about a month after we were opened, we went into this little, uh, like drive-in bistro kind of place called Buffalo Roadhouse that used to be in Woodstock. And the woman behind the counter named Robin was a former chef at the restaurant that we worked at, uh, we owned. When it was when it was Shirley's, and she said, "My daughter was with me, and my daughter was six. My daughter was. I gave her a bag, and she had the tongs, and she was picking bagels to put in the bag. And Robin said to me, "Have you met Emily?" And I said, "Who's Emily?" She said, "Emily, the ghost." And my daughter, without any prompting, just looked up at her, shrugged her shoulders, and said, "Her name's not Emily. Her name is Sandy." And when adults come in the room, she goes back to the top of the closet. And went back to picking, <laughs> went back to picking bagels. So from that point, the connection. I believed. <laughs> so children have a knack for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the haunted vibe, but people like that. That was part of the story of the restaurant. That was part of the mystique. Yeah. You know, yeah, I had people sure. say, "Is it safe to go to the ladies' room?" I'm saying, I say, as long as you're not an evildoer, you're fine. Just smile and bring a cookie. You know, um, <laughs> you had the yeah. same thing in your place, John. Yeah, oh yeah, I could tell you a bunch of stories. Um, uh all very interesting you know at night closing up at night um um going to bed and um all of a sudden um well this one most important time was uh, kevin's really was living in the building as well as myself and my wife we had the back end of the house on the second floor and he had the front end of the house above the above the bar and it turned out that night that he, I, I went to bed uh, first, and he stayed up, cleaned the bar, whatever it was, and then he went upstairs to his part of the house, and he went to bed. All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he's knocking at my door, and he said, John, you have to come downstairs. I said, what's the matter? He said, I don't know what's going on. He said, but I, um, the, the water under the sink in the bar, it, both nozzles are on full blast. And the door that I usually close at night was wide open. And so it wasn't, and he was, he was more concerned about ghosts than I was. I, I, when I was working on the house, like you, Rick, being in the house, you know, doing all the work that you were doing on, I, the same way, I, I, I actually camped out in the house and established a bedroom upstairs and there was a pile of plaster on my right side and a pile of plaster on the left side of the bed. If I wanted to, I could just reach over and spit, you know, it was, it was that, uh, but I was also told by one of the old timers, uh, the countrymen 
uh, who lived in the house for 25 years. He said, John, there is a ghost. And he said, what you need to do is put um, a little bit of something for the ghost on the attic stairs. <laughs> so uh, we, a little sacrifice. Yeah, we did what that. Did ghost, what did the ghost want? What, what did the ghost like to the eat? The ghost was, uh, oh, I, I never found that out. Um, probably beer, just a cold beer or something. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife, my wife had an experience in Dupuy when she went to the ladies' room. We were there one time, and it was a quieter weeknight. Um, and she came out of the restroom covered with sweat and white. And I said, "Are you okay?" <laughs> and she said, "I met a little girl in the bathroom, and then she was gone." Oh! I said, oh. "Wow." Some people are a little more tuned in than yeah. others. Some have That's more true. vivid imaginations. That's but true. yeah, the Dupuyo. I had employees that we had shared that would tell me their ghost stories of the Dupuy of things falling off the shelf. So I believe. I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm not afraid to go into an old house, but. There's energy, whatever it is, but we have it up in the Hudson Valley, that's for sure. Yeah. Especially, oh, that's the, for sure. especially the stone uh, houses, you know. Well, well, I was confident that Simeon Dupuy, the guy who built the canal house, the building, um, was behind every effort that I made. It was just certain things that worked out that he was behind me with confidence. Just say you guys put up, mentioned how much it cost you to open your restaurant. For me to open the Canal House back in 1969, it was a total of $14,000. 10000 I borrowed from the bank and 4000 uh, my accountant gave me uh, to get through. My sister also lent me a couple of thousand, um, mm. but that came later. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, you know, that's, well, as David was saying, you know, you mentioned, David, about it's very different now. Opening a restaurant now is a multifaceted, multimedia, multi-marketing, multi-financial stream thing where 69, 79, even me, 92, it was still very mom and pop. It was still... We want to make great food. We want to hire some great waiters. We want to get some art. We want to play some great music and we want to make a living. And, it, you know, I, I've done some consulting with people recently. And, and the whole concept of opening a restaurant is it's just like, I guess, the difference between the way it was to make a film back in the 40s compared to making a film now, right? You could make a great film back in the 40s with a crew of 12 or 15 people, and now there's 500 people. It's the same thing with opening a restaurant. It's very, That's why so many people, I think, are opening little storefront, hands-on, pokey bars and stuff, because you don't need to have the waves of staffing and the waves of marketing and all the things you need. There's, I would a, want lot, to, there's you know, a lot of different aspects to that. You know, there's... There's, you know, part of it is the, um, you know, I mean, we could, we could, you know, talk about the history, but like, I mean, I think it, of it as sort of like the, the restaurant associates, the Joe Baumification of restaurants, right? So like, the restaurant has to be this grand theatrical experience, millions and millions of dollars in decor, you know, um, you know, you can't 
how, what is, that makes no sense, right? I mean, a restaurant is a room where you come to eat, right? And it should be pleasant. And it's, I mean, this is, I'm, this, I'm being, you know, the curmudgeon now, but like, I never decorated any of the restaurants that I had, you know, they were just pleasant spaces, right? And uh, now it, you know, it has to have waterfalls and it has to have just, you know, certain kind of lighting and a, you know, a whole, a whole thing, you know, whereas I think in the past, you know, you would spend money on ingredients, you'd spend money on, um, uh, you know, maybe if you want, wanted to go to that kind of style or level, you'd spend money on China and glassware and silverware, you, you know, put money into your wine cellar, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, it's just become, I mean, you can't open a restaurant in New York City for you can, but it's a, a serious restaurant, let's say, whatever that means, uh, uh, for less than, you know, many millions of dollars. Yeah. And with the real estate numbers, the way they are, the recoup's not real. No, the recoup's exactly. You can't make it back. It's, it's very different. You know, I worked for Roti in the city when I managed Sugar Reef and Roti was a group for two couples from Mississippi that opened Sugar Reef, Tortilla Flats, Gulf Coast, uh, Cowgirl Hall of Fame. They were involved with El Teddy's, but they were brilliant because they kind of started the theme restaurant vibe in New York in the mid eighties, kind of breaking away from fancy China and silverware. And they went totally as if you were eating in Jamaica, right? Everything was more arts and crafts oriented. It was com the community decorated the restaurant. The art was, was community oriented. And they taught me a less that lesson carried with me when I opened my restaurant is that the restaurant is a stage set. It's not really a place where people live. I don't need to spend $80,000 on a marble floor. No one's going to actually acknowledge the marble floor. When I read about, you know, the expensive fixtures that people put in restaurants where a company like Roti took old antique fixtures from upstate and painted them black. That's kind of what the upstate thing was about. I joke with my daughter who lives in Brooklyn. I said, all Brooklyn is is people that used to come upstate, bring stuff downstate and say, look, we're cool now. We have old stuff. But we had all that stuff up here. You know, you you had funky tables and warped floorboards. Remember the floors in the original Xena Road restaurant were these 24-inch planks that were so warped. If you dropped a marble, you, you'd be chasing it for five minutes. It rolled all over the place. And that was okay. That was part of the personality. And I feel like a lot of these places are either look like Ikea showrooms or like, you know, the Trump's living room. They just don't look like a place that I really want to hang out in, you know? That That's one of the reasons that I uh, loved all of your restaurants. Um, and I invited you guys all to, you know, this space here today because all of your restaurants had really distinct personalities and there was such a deep connection with the space and with the community. And, you know, of course, you know, New World Cooking was very different from Jantrell, you know, and Canal House was different from, you know, either of these. But all of them, let's, um, how should I put it, put it? When I was there in all of your restaurants, I always felt really welcomed. You know what I mean? Like that I was Hospitality. Not, yeah, that I was just not, like, you know, a customer who just happened to, you know, want to eat something, you know, but I was like 
kind of welcomed into this community. And even like Chanterelle, which was probably one of the most expensive restaurants at the time. And I was um, fortunate enough to have been there twice in my life before you guys closed. And I think you know the credit goes also very much to uh, Karen, David, your wife. But the minute I walked into that restaurant, you know, m- most restaurants of that level in New York, it was very intimidating, but your restaurant was not. It was really warm and down to earth. And I could tell that it really revolved around your love for food. And that goes to all of you. Um, And, you know, that really differentiated your restaurants from other restaurants. So, you know, it's kind of telling that you guys are now all in the Hudson Valley. And um, um, you, all of you went through this, you know, period of, struggling and you know closing the restaurants and like if you google new world cooking or chanterelle or the canal house you can see all the articles you know lamenting the closing of your restaurants like everybody was like oh my gosh i can't believe this restaurant is closing you know it's like losing a part of your family members so i mean that says a lot about all of you you know um but so is it not possible now to have that kind of, um, you know, restaurants? Is, you know, is it changing? What's going on? You know, what do you think? Um, if, if, if somebody, I mean, Rick, you've done, you've been doing consulting, but what do you say to, you know, young people who are starting out and who have the kind of restaurants that you had in mind? What would you say to them? Um, Kiko, I um, think that, People in general want to eat out more. And um, the fine dining restaurants are pretty limited these days, um, especially with the economy being what it is and the status of the economy. Um, and I, I, I'm finding myself going to places, you know, that are really inexpensive, but good food. And you can find those, those places. Um, and then once in a while, still try to splurge and go to a place that's tablecloth, etc. Um, but I, I want to tell a story. I thought that uh, Chanterelle was opened in 1971, uh, but evidently I, I know now that it wasn't. But I just wanted to tell the story, and I can't think of the name of the restaurant. But after the Canal House, the Canal House won four stars from Craig Claiborne in March 1970. And shortly after that, I mean, I didn't, I was a kid. I didn't know what four stars meant. So Kevin was working in the front of the house. So I said, Kevin, let's go to New York and find a four-star restaurant. Wait, so. I'm I'm sure, David, you know him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and Rick does for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. so we went to New York, and I thought we went to a restaurant, the Chanterelle. So I'm, I, the, the thing that happened once we got to New York, I said, how do we find a four-star restaurant? So I called Craig Claiborne's office, and Mrs. Cannon was his secretary at the time. And I, I didn't talk to him directly, but I said, Mrs. Cannon, 
I'm John Novich. She said, oh, I know, I know. I, I have the article. I read it. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and I said, we're interested in finding a four-star restaurant. We want to see what a four-star restaurant is like. Um, so I thought it was the chanterelle that she gave me, but an, another restaurant that might have been open during that time, um, Pierre Frenet, I think, was working. Um, oh, so that would be probably Caravelle. Caravelle. Rhymes, sort of. Car yeah. <laughs> Loose poetry there, John, but good. <laughs> and um, and so we went there and that was uh, quick david by the way pretty impressed yeah uh it uh, turned out that it wasn't the canal house the canal house was more of a country restaurant um but only i got into the food end of it for sure and the design of the plate and spent a lot of time learning you know garnishes etc um, yeah, fact, your food could, was very, very beautiful. Yeah, I could teach a class on garnishes. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, anyway, it was into beautiful in that country way. With the, the only garnishes on food for us were what was an extension of what you were eating. I, I, I refused to allow my cooks to do anything, any frivolity in my vision at that time. I wanted to be naked. We talked about. The food looking like it just kind of blew in on a breeze and landed on a plate, and uh, it was you know it was a different it was a different look and feel for the time. It was actually kind of rebellious at the time to not tweak and and work the plates. And Eric Mann, who was a chef at the Bear, and I are really close friends, and we would joke. He I would he would say, "I thicken my sauce and you serve it in a bowl." I'm like, exactly. It's like I, I was. I think I was going a little bit more for, you know, being an Italian American, even though I, and I cook, I love to cook Italian food and did a fair amount of it in my mix, even though we were never known as a place that did Italian, the philosophy of that, which was keeping the plate straightforward and, and letting the, the ingredients and flavors be the, be the driver of the dish was what we did. And it, that was interesting because we were 92. So the evolution of the way food was presented and plated um, went through some changes. And, you know, by, by 2002, my chefs wanted to start making foam and powders and things like that. And I was like, oh, dude, must we? You're the one that zeroed in on um, calling f your style of food real food, wasn't it? Yeah. We used, we used all those kind of words, yeah. I wrote the book, We Want Clean Food, Real Food. Yeah, I, wasn't, I, really, I really, you know, I, I worked at the Harvest. I worked under all these amazing uh, Johnson & Wales and and Cordon Bleu trained chefs. And then, you know, I moved to the village and was playing punk rock and working at these restaurants like Sugar Reef and uh, Gulf Coast that had lines out the door all night that were printing money. They didn't even take credit cards. I remember one night, Cloris Leachman was in with a, her little entourage and tried to pay with the credit card. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't take your credit card. She said, do you know who I am? And I said, do you have a checkbook? <laughs> and made her write a check. I mean, it was that kind of thing. So that little East Village thing got into my uh, into my psyche a bit, I think, as I decided to open my restaurant. But it's different. But it's it's four star restaurants, and it's funny because I was friends with Brian Miller, you know, and uh, he wrote a nice article about New World in the Times, and that pissed a lot of people off because we weren't supposed to be the type of restaurant that was beginning in the New York times, but times were changing by 1993, 94, that restaurants like ours were getting noticed for 
something different, you know? So it, it's cool to be part of that evolution of how the restaurants evolve from, and Chefs and Drugs and Rock and Roll tells that story really well, you know? Yeah. Um, going, going back to that same book, I guess, but yeah. it is a good story. I, I, mean, I, 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 like, I, mean, I worry about the future of New York City, I mean, especially at this moment, you know, in the light of the fact that, you know, there are good restaurants everywhere, you know? Yeah. And so it's, you know, that people talk about, I, I was teaching for a while uh, at a culinary school in the city. And, uh, you know, there, there are, chefs were always talking about the shortage of good cooks and good, you know, line cooks and so on. And it's like, if you, if you, in the day when, you know, you had to go to New York. You, so you paid your dues and you went to New York and you worked and you built up your resume as a cook. Um, and then you moved on somewhere else. But so many places have great restaurants, so many cities and small cities, towns, etc. cetera. Um, why would you, you know, even if it sort of comes back to where it was, why would you want to live with, you know, six other people at, way out in, you know, Queens somewhere and commute into to work at Danielle or someplace like that, you know, when you can work at a, you have a, a, a decent life in another place and work at a great restaurant. Um, it still carries weight though. It still carries weight. I mean, I'd have people, when I had the Albany restaurant for 11 years, we were on top of our game for quite a while. And I would have chefs come in that, that, that was the, the highlight of their resume. They, you know, they staged at Danielle or they staged with, you know, whatever, Jean George or, and they expected to be hired first because of that. And it didn't always work out that way, but some of them had really good skills, but uh, it is a little different now. I think a lot of restaurants are looking for people that just are cooperative and want to learn and cook as opposed to coming in with the preconceived notion of what, what, you know, what they think is better than the owner, especially chef owners. Chef owners are always, for my money, chef owners are always dealing with getting talented people, but that don't have their own agenda coming in the door that are willing to be part of your, your, as I used to call it, part of the band. You're going to be part of the band, man, you know, and, uh, it's, it's a challenge, but the people really, you know, that Schenectady community college and Cobble skill community college, which are much lower price and lower level than the CIA are putting out similar students right now, similar quality graduates. And, a lot of those kids will go to the city. Their parents will figure out a way to pay and do their six months just so they can say they did. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed working with um, externs from the culinary. Um, I opened the, when I opened the Canal House. Um, we were open two years before the CIA moved to Hyde Park, and that was a blessing for me because um, I was working with people at the time. I, I didn't realize that I had such a love and interest in food um, until one day I found myself with a 20 pound bass in front of me and Jacques Pepin's book on how to fillet it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was, um, uh, and so once, and the, the people that I had working for me, they were just interested in making money. But after the CIA came in, I, I registered with them and um, all for all the rest of the years, I worked with two or three students at a time. And the fact was, it was 
a benefit to me too. These people came from all different parts of the world. Absolutely, yeah. And I remember um, a couple of people, um, and very talented people. Uh, one, Barry Wine stole from me. <laughs> <laughs> and Sutherland, uh, she became oh, yeah. his. Uh, and um, and Barry, incidentally, <laughs> Rick, um, was my lawyer. And in New Paltz. And one day when I went to his office, he said, John, take a walk with me. We walked down the street and he said, see that building? I bought it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to open a restaurant. I was, God bless you, man. Yeah. Uh, and it was there that Ann Sutherland, uh, two years later, I think it was, um, worked for him in New Paltz. David, did you have externs in the, in the city? I had lots and lots of externs. Um, yeah. I rarely took CIA externs because um, because at some point they the school required that they be paid, and I never I I refused to pay externs. I just didn't pay them. Uh, you know, and you know I could get away with it. You know, um, and my my attitude about externs was that you know if it's an extra pair of hands, and if and if you know a possible you know person that I would hire, if they you know prove themselves in a way, and there's an opening, but otherwise it's just you know it's great if we have them, and if we don't have them, we'll be fine without them. I never I never wanted to depend on them. Well, the benefit for for the Canal House was that we were only 22 miles from the school, and so I would put an ad out for an extern. And I would work with this and I would let them know, listen, I want to work with you for a weekend before I might make a decision. So I would work with various different people until I found somebody that I thought was worth the investment. And, yeah. and it turned out very positive for me because a lot of these people stayed on and worked primarily just Saturday nights when I needed them the most. Um, being open Thursday through Sunday, I, you know, I didn't need them any other night. And that and that was the key, you know. We we John and I, our restaurants were much more seasonal, right, than Chanterelle. So I used to like to bring externs in in the late spring and run them through the busiest season, and then make deals with them. We called them weekend warriors, whether it were Saturday night Sunday brunch or Friday night Saturday day prep. But I would have these extra hands that had already done our busiest season that knew what we knew our product, knew our methods. And for a seasonal restaurant, that was invaluable because I didn't have to carry another salary all week. I had someone who had already done four months with me during the peak of the season that knew how to come in and jump on the grill on Saturday night so I can give my, not have my other people going into overtime or whatever, because you know the winters are very different. We go to a much smaller team. I would go from nine cooks on a Saturday night in the summer to three or four in the winter, um, and well, especially during the week, maybe two cooks during the week and three or four, including me, on top of that. So the externs were good, but they changed the program. You know, in the beginning, the externship program, the externs had to have two years in the field at an accredited restaurant from the Culinary Institute. By uh, the mid to, I don't know, maybe 2008 or nine. They changed that and they only had to have six months in the field and it didn't have to be an accredited restaurant. So the quality of externs really changed. You got a lot of kids right out of high school where back when 
you know, in the 80s was before me, but the 90s and early 2000s, most of them were in their 20s. I had externs in their 40s and 50s who had been cooking their whole life, right? That went to the culinary that knew how to break down a goat. I mean, I had some really killer people and some of my best sous chefs started as externs with me. Yes, with me. I mean, that's the best way to hire people is you know, have them work for you for a while and then you see what they're capable of and what their potential is. I mean, I mean, I had, I don't know how many externs over the 30 years. Where, that where were you that. getting it from? Where were you getting it from? Uh, yeah. ICE, French culinary. Uh, I would take people in that just, like I had, sometimes I had kids that just said, you know, I really want to, I'm off, I'm, I'm a high school kid. I want to, you know, work, work the summer in your restaurant. I mean, I'm sure it would be totally illegal to do now or, you know, my potentially dangerous, but I always, you know, if, if they seemed like they were sincere, I would give them a shot. I mean, I have, I mean, there's a guy who has a Spanish restaurant on the Lower East Side named called Huertas. And he started at my restaurant when he was 13 years old. He came in, he, he was really interested in food and his, his bar mitzvah, one of his bar mitzvah presents was dinner at Chanterelle. And so, you know, he was a you know, 13 year old. So of course, you know, do you want to see the kitchen? And he came in the kitchen and talked. And he came every summer through high school and he worked, you know, a few days a week and he stayed with it. And he, you know, ended up working for Danny Meyer at a couple of his places and he ended up opening his own restaurant. Um, you know, but I, I would say the whole thing with externs is that I generally either remember them if I hired them and they, because they were really good or if they were just horrible and, and made for a lot of really good stories. So uh, can I ask a question then? Um, so what you just described, David, is more like, um, like an apprenticeship in the uh, old, old sense. So I think in that way, you know, it kind of makes sense that, you know, like this little kid stayed with you and learned the craft and, you know, ended up opening his restaurant. That's a really great story. But it, realistically speaking, though, these days, if externs were not getting paid or getting paid very little. You can't, you can't do that now because yeah. there are liability issues and somebody so gets the labor hurt, blah, blah, too, blah, yeah. you to be on your payroll in order to mm -hmm. by your insurance. But it was a little different in the old days. You know? Yeah, we paid the minimum wage, you know, basically minimum wage for their externship. And they understood that, you know, or, or maybe rounded minimum wage up to the next dollar. If it was seven fifty, we gave them eight, whatever. But um, yeah, I think the labor laws changed on externship in New York somewhere. My wife is in labor laws, so she can tell you exactly when it happened. But there was a certain place. And, you know, you, you used to be able to offer part of your compensation could be a place to live or whatever meals were considered that um, to offset the labor. But I think they changed that. You still have to pay a base minimum wage now. But still, you know, I'm slammed. We got catering and it's a busy season and you're going to make minimum wage and you're going to work 40 hours a week, maybe 50, maybe 60. I can use you. Come on. Can you stand up? Can you talk? Yeah. Can you hold a knife? Can, can, you, wash di board? can you wash yeah. dishes? Start off yeah. washing dishes? I've had a lot of dishwashers end up in the kitchen and becoming very, very worthwhile. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, you know, from, from an outsider, 
I don't know how anybody would want to run a restaurant. I mean, because on, on every level, That's it true. just seems like a really the hard hours, work for the, not that much money, you know? And the but, you hours know, alone. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's great for us, you know? And like David was saying earlier, there seems to be a lot of restaurants restaurants now that serve really decent food. Like compared to when I first moved up here in 97, there are so many good restaurants in Kingston and in Woodstock, New Pulse, everywhere. Um, but they, they all, they, they're all still just restaurants who serve decent food and they're not really new world cooking or uh chanterelle or Dupuy canal house which was like an experience i guess you know the, the difference may be that um you guys were all chef owners i'm not sure so maybe i think well yeah. david was talking about earlier i think that three of us were kind of pioneers in that we had a passion and a vision to do something a little different exactly and, exactly. and a lot of restaurants that are opening now don't do that for me they seem like they've went through the the tableau of oh i pick i want to be this restaurant i want to be that restaurant they're not they're not really inventing something that they stand behind it's a, you know for me it was a passion there was years i made money there was years i didn't make money there was times i had money there was times i didn't have money but i never thought about not doing it until i, I realized i was in it 25 years and maybe i wanted to do something else with my life you know but i think that that's part of it is passion as opposed to like a prototype you know i know i've restaurants in kinks and a lot of them are just a cookie cutter and they're not bad there are good cookie cutter restaurants but they have no soul the word is soul my friend and if you don't have soul and I'm looking at these these two guys on the bottom of the screen here and they're people with soul you can feel it you know right john the yeah, james brown of chefs man your heart is in it your heart is in it I actually couldn't wait to get into my kitchen in the mornings. I, I I loved getting there hours before any staff came in. I accomplished so much more, and I prepped for them and making it a lot easier. And I used to say to these guys, listen, I don't ask anything of you um, during the day, but once 5 o'clock comes, the curtain goes up, it's all restaurant it's all serious um and that's the way we operated you know everybody had time off during the day and we had a lot you know everybody followed their plan there i always had a, a, um, a list of things that each person had to do and if they accomplished that then we would open of course um with everything the way it should be and if they had trouble getting things accomplished they would let somebody know and we would help that person get through their their jobs. But it was always really interesting. I, I loved opening the doors um, in the evening. Um, I loved brunch on Sunday. That's, uh, that was, it was a, it was really an incredible life that I must say. Yeah. Um, Nothing like the sound of a humming restaurant, right? Yeah, it's a great it's so sound. True. So true. And uh, I, my gut feeling after literally giving the property, willing the property to the Canal Society, an organization that I started in 1966 on March 31st, 
and 65 people joined that night and I was appointed president of the organization. And I worked for many years on their side, um, doing benefits, providing food for various different walks up the canal, whatever it took, I was there for them. And then um, I actually consider myself a poor man's philanthropist to be able to <laughs> give all of my property to an organization that I started and loved. That's great. But lo and behold, to my surprise, once that transfer took place, uh, it, it, they turned it more into a, it was almost like a corporate takeover instead of a nonprofit organization. And I, there's an article in the, our local paper, the Bluestone Press, um, and it touches on a little bit of that. But I'm disgraced by this organization, and um, and I have a lot in storage that belongs to them. I would have, and, and all of the furniture I have in storage from that place, um, and uh, I would have given it to the organization. And much of it belonged in the house. But under the organization as they are right now, the people that are running it, the president, who at one point in history was a very good friend, along with Kevin and another guy, we were four of us that always had a lot of fun with food and wine. Uh, but there's a division there now, and it's unfortunate. Um, I'm hurt totally. But I, I had said to the bank 15 years to the bank, I said to the, them, the organization, the DNH Canal Society. Listen, man, take over my house, pay the bank my balance, get me out of that debt, and the property is yours. Just give me the house behind where my kids were born, and the the it was a barn, and I restored the barn to be living quarters. So that's what I accomplished getting out for them. But however, they also had to charge me a, a rent. Um, based on the fact that um, they have to now pay property tax. So anyway, it's enough of that story. You know a little bit of a gist of it. And eventually, the truth will come out. Um, but if you... Uh, yeah, you've, got a book, you've got a book there, John. You've got a nice you know, book yeah, right there. It's, it's a storybook cookbook I'm working on. Um, and it's the evolution of a menu. It's the evolution of a recipe. How a soup goes from being cold in the summertime with the same theme of the ingredients that might be in it now to change over to a fall soup, to change over to a winter soup. And I've recorded changes that I've made starting with the Radio Shack computer <laughs> way back when and kept it up so that I have every month broken down as to what the changes were for various different items on the menu. As I made a change, I changed it on a master sheet that I had saved. Can I ask David a question on that? David. John has recipes. I have over 900 recipes on on my computer. Did you do recipes in Chanterelle or did you just cook? Uh, the only time I ever did, well, mostly not recipes. Mostly not. Mostly... Um, but I have your cookbook, David. I, I did recipes <laughs> for the cookbook, which is torture. Um, uh, but, you know, it had to be done. But, no, I mean, I we changed the menu, like, 
all the time. Like when we first opened, we changed it every week. Then we went to two every two weeks. And when we moved to a much larger space, we did it every month. And I tried to change, you know, pretty much everything. Um, but it was like I just kind of orchestrated the change. And I got to the point where I had people working for me. And I would say, you know, that duck dish with the sherry vinegar that we did last year. Well, we're going to do it again on next week's menu, but it's going to be a little bit different. You know, and this is how it's going to be different, and they could just do it. Do you have the re- Do you have the uh, menus? Did you save the menus? I have lots of menus. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I saved. Yes, I saved. So I saved the the written out. So Karen used to write out the menus, right? That was like the you know influenced by like La Pyramide, you know that whole exactly yeah that whole idea. Um, so she used to write out the menus by hand. And uh, when we got to the our Tribeca restaurant, uh, which was, again, much, much larger, she still wrote them out by hand, but then we would print them. So we would also print them with her handwriting. So we have almost every menu from- that, Well, that, that's here. the key. That's, that's crucial. But I have, I have notebooks. So like I would write notes on these things, but they weren't, they were, they weren't recipes in the sense of like, a recipe that's published in a book. They were sketches of a recipe, right? Like a chef recipe, right? One of, one of the toughest experiences I went through when I moved to Albany, I got my first executive chef job at this place called Yates Street. And the owner is kind of a crazy cat, jazz guy from Rhode Island. He's probably about 55 when I was 28. Uh, named Kenny Linden, he worked with Larry Forgione at River Cafe. And he had a menu. It was uh, it was one of the top two or three restaurants in the Capital District. There wasn't a ton happening then, but he was doing Forgione-style new American food in the 80s. And uh, he told me, I can make anything I want f- within a certain parameter, like the fish of the day, the soup of the day. Not I couldn't ver- ver- you know change anything on the menu. Um, however, he gave me a box, a package of index cards and one of those little index card boxes. And he goes, I want your ratios on it, rough ratios and notes. I, he said, because if I, what if I want to make them again? I said, well, and he just looked at me in this really sarcastic face and said, what if you die? <laughs> I said, <laughs> okay. So, so I rebelled against that. You know, I worked for him for about six or seven months recruited another friend of mine who had worked with Bob Kincaid, a guy named Bill Bradley, who's another great chef, to take over for me and went to Justin's to take over this jazz club because I wanted to have that village thing. And the cooks there were kind of, you know, burnouts. And I started building a team, but I realized within about two or three months of running my own kitchen where I can design my own menu as if I was the owner, I went exactly to Ken Linden's format. I said, guys, I don't want you just jamming. I don't want anything going on the menu, especially if it's a night I'm not here. Write it down. And now, 30 some odd years later, as I'm developing products for retail, those recipes are gold. They're gold. I'm flipping through saying, oh my God, I can make that horseradish sauerkraut. I can, you know, I'm looking at all these things that I can turn into products that I already have recipes which you know you have to go back in and rework but at least they have the bones of the recipes 
that I can then submit to Cornell to find out if I can actually package them. So I'm thrilled that I spent, I got over my, my, I'll call it teenage angst, but it was mid, my mid twenties angst of battling with an older guy over the discipline of writing down what they, what I did. Cause I just wanted to, I just want to cook, man, you know? And uh, it was good that he did that to me because frankly, at New World Home Cooking, after the first four or five years, I had a couple of guys. I had one guy in my kitchen for 22 years, another guy for 20 years, both from El Salvador. The core menu, they made. They came in at 7 in the morning, left at 3. The line cooks came in, tweaked the specials, did their mise en place. But all the sauces, all the relishes, all the chutneys, all the butchering, all the braising was done. My American cooks didn't do any of that because I had two guys made ropa vieja twice a week, marinated all the Barbados chicken, did all of the Thai slaw. I mean, I, they learned from my recipes and they just, I said, I set up pars and they produced it. So it was actually freed me up to be on the creative end, to keep pushing more creative things, you know? I, I also, I also want to add that um, uh, at Chanterelle, David, I think this was Karen's idea that you guys um, had artists of the time design a menu cover like once every month or something and that became a very valuable collection because you had you know anyone from like Francesco Clemente to Eric Fischel to Virgil Thompson to like like even did John Cage even did the menu Cage cover did yeah wow um, yeah. Yeah. so that was you know that was part of the connection with the with, in a sense it was part of the connection with the neighborhood you know, because as I said, you know, it was Soho in the 70s and 80s was still, you know, artists in residence. You know, it was you weren't allowed to live in those lofts unless you had that status. I'm sure plenty of people lived illegally, but, um, uh, you know, there were a few galleries and there were there were artists and it was it was. A, it was that kind of a place. And so, um, you know, we made the decision that we weren't going to put art on the walls because we didn't want to feature somebody forever. So we, we did the, we had, we changed the menu cover usually about twice a year and the design of the menu, the exterior, the cover of the menu would be done by different artists. And, uh, you know, we still have, it's a huge collection uh, of those things. And, um, you know, over the over 30 years, we had close to 70 because there were some that were um, only used for one night. So for a special event or something like that. Um, yeah, lots of lots and lots and lots of, of artists, some very well known, some not. That's great. I love that. I, I, I yeah. would love to see that kind of collaboration between artists and restaurants, you know. Yeah. So if you don't mind um, sharing with us, you know, what it was like for you to, you know, uh, come to the decision of letting go of this beloved, you know, business. I mean, it was more than a business for you, you know, your life, you know, it was your world. Uh, you know, earlier I mentioned that, you know, for us too, it was like losing a family member, but I can't imagine what it must have been like for you guys. Want to take it, David? Yeah, sure. 
So um, coming back to what something that Rick said, you know, I remember um, uh, I, I, in addition to Chanterelle, I had a couple of other restaurants and uh, I just remember hiring a cook at a bistro that I had on Duane Street called Luzing. And, um, you know, I guess that I had a chef in, in place there and he had hired this guy. And then I came in the kitchen and talked to him. And the chef told me later, it's like, oh, that's David Walter from Chanterelle. He, he must be worth like a gazillion dollars. You know, um, <laughs> you know, back to what you said before, you know, some years we made money. We made a living, right? It, was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we were, yeah, we were an expensive restaurant. Uh, in the end, we became an expensive restaurant. And um, we, uh, uh, but it cost a fortune to run that restaurant, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't like big money. So my point, I guess, is just um, after 30 years, we hit the, you know, the whole downturn of, you know, 2008. And I just remember that fall season just completely fell apart. And that was when we moved, you know, from the red to the black, you know, like the, you know, October, November and December just didn't happen that year for us. And so we, you know, we were just starting to fall behind and we were able to keep going for another year. Um, but it just wasn't going in a good direction. And uh, the people that were our investors at this point, you know, many years on were just, they're just, weren't interested in putting more money in so um you know there were there were uh, you know fits and starts and attempts of you know reinventing ourselves and so on and so forth but ultimately it was forced upon us it wasn't and that's you know kind of bitter uh you know in the sense that you know if after 30 years i had said okay 30 years is a good amount of time i'm going to go do something else which is when you said, Rick, um, uh, I would feel differently about it, uh, you know, so I, I always will feel that there was, you know, a certain amount of unfinished business about it. But ultimately, it just wasn't viable economically to keep going. Um, and so it had to it had to happen. Um, 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 but I, you know, I, you know, people there were good times and there were not so good times in running a restaurant. So, you know, people always talk about, you know, people's memory is very selective and very particular. You know, there are people who will tell you that, you know, springtime isn't like it used to be when I was a kid, you know? So there were good times in the restaurant and there were, you know, there were difficult times, but I do miss that feeling, that experience, that creativity, forced creativity sometimes. Yeah. Um, right. Sometimes difficult, sometimes banging your head against the wall to figure out what to do. But, you know, sometimes there there were, you know, moments of success and triumph and, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just feeling uh, that you're you are working in a team, that you are working for a certain goal. Um, I wasn't very much of a person to go in the dining room, but I like to hear that people enjoyed themselves, you know, even if it was secondhand that I heard it, um, you know, I, I miss a lot of those things. Um, 
so you know that that's that's how it ended up um uh and uh you know i've worked in the world of food since then i've opened i opened a restaurant uh you know uh whenever it was 2014 that i lasted a couple of years um i've worked as an executive chef for a large restaurant company and i've enjoyed teaching i i the last you know few years i i've been teaching and that's obviously shut down at the moment but um it's something i would gladly do again in the right uh situation um but that you know restaurant people it's like you know it's like being in the circus you know it's like it's it's weird it's like it's it's a way of life and it really takes over your life and it becomes what you do and who you are in a really um, um, over overwhelming overriding way and uh you know it's 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 uh it's hard to say goodbye to that in a way it is it is i have to say for us in um 2008 in the height of the economic collapse two friends of mine in albany who own the spectrum movie theater um annette nannis and scott meyer approached me they had taken they're on a strip in a little neighborhood in albany delaware avenue which is a mixed neighborhood it's old italian neighborhood now it's kind of mixed colors mixed everything it's a it's a fun little neighborhood and they built out it they started building out a restaurant and they offered it to me do you want to open another new world now at that time you know because of my early days in albany when i got involved i was there for three years before i moved to woodstock 89 to 92 but I got involved in a lot of the Albany's the epicenter for not-for-profits, right? It's everybody's there because it's the capital. It's where the lobbyists are. I got involved with the food bank. I got involved with the arts council. I got involved with Equinox. I got and I and I started doing all these fundraisers. And even within three years in Albany, because I'm a little bit of a quirky personality and an ex-musician, got a little bit of local celebrity chef status. I was beginning to be out front with these organizations, and I stuck with it the whole time. I was in Woodstock. I stayed with my not-for-profit stuff. I did a lot of appearances on WAMC. So I was still kind of a name in Albany. So they approached me about this space in 2008 or going into nine and asked me if I would want to buy it. And I said, no, but I'll be your consultant. Well, that consulting contract turned out to be, you're going to license the New World name we're going to open another new world in Albany with similar menus, signature signature dishes the same, but a little bit of a different float on it. And I'm going to be your consulting chef. And I promise that Mike guarantee to be there 10 days a month in person after, after the first three months where I was there 10, 20 hours a day to get it rolling. Um, and that started happening and that restaurant exploded. That restaurant in its second year did more business than New World Home Cooking ever did by a million dollars more. It was just a bigger market, right? The capital district's at least a half a million people. And all the press is still writing about chefs. It's, it, it's not as jaded as down here. They're a little more middle American in a way. The, the newspapers still do reviews. It's all that stuff. So we were flying and I was making reasonably good money. At the same time, my wife graduated from law school. She went, she started when we first got married, had a quit when we had babies and went back. And she got a, a really uh, cool job working for Ulster County in the family court system. 
So by 2016, I saw the writing on the wall that the bistro in Albany, New World Bistro Bar, was a solid income for me and a solid outlet for me. I was in the kitchen two days a week doing what I wanted to do, designing the menu. I had some really great young people working under me. This restaurant in Saugerties was barely breaking even, and the labor market was getting really harder and harder. It was, I couldn't find the people anymore. It was harder and harder. But the writing on the wall for me was how many restaurants were opening. As you guys said earlier, there are a lot of decent places to eat. Is there any place great? I'm not going to say that, but there's a, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of options that I could sit in and not feel like I'm you know, going for fast food or junk food, right? As a friend of mine from Italy once said, you need more asses than seats. We have more seats than asses in our market in a big way, except for maybe 16 weekends a year, you know, maybe from like, you know, 4th of July through the last leaf falling, the weekends, you turn people away. So we were still doing pretty good numbers. Our numbers hadn't really fallen off, but our expenses had gone up. But I had reinvented New World five times at the five-year mark, at the eight-year mark, at the 10-year mark, you know, where I would revamp the menu, maybe get a new logo design, paint the place. I just decided, I, 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 I think it was 2016 going to 2017. I said to my wife, we either have, we're going on 25 years. We either need to do another reinvent. And she looked at me, she said, why? Why? So we put it on the market and we couldn't get what we needed to get for it. What we owed on the, we had remortgaged, of course, in 2014, like idiots. So we had a pretty big nut and all these different operators say, you know, you guys have been here so long and your personality is so big that it would take two or three years for the Rick Orlando and the people would be mad if they came in here, it wasn't your place. So we couldn't sell it for what we wanted to sell it for. So we made a plan in uh, the fall of 2017 to close, but we decided we didn't want to screw our employees because the winter is an impossible time to get a job, right? So we made a plan to close April 7th of 2018. We had made that plan four months in advance, but didn't announce it until two weeks before to the day. We went public, we called all the newspapers, we told our staff, we paid everybody in advance, and then they made bonuses at the end because, and they all stayed. All these kids that you're saying, well, they're iffy workers, we don't know how loyal they are. They stayed till the bitter end. We had waiters that had worked for us 20 years earlier, emailing saying, can I come work one shift before it's over? So we had like all-star waiters showing up. Those last two weeks, we did more business in two weeks than we had done in any two-week run in the history of the restaurant. And then we just locked the door. And it took us almost a year and a half to unload the building at that point. We just locked the door. My son did a salvage sale and sold, you know, people were buying old signs and old menu covers and chairs and whatever. And we cleared the place out. And I feel like a million bucks. I have to tell you, I feel like I made it a legacy that we didn't, that someone else, the fact that no one else is in there kind of makes it even more of a legacy in a weird way. Cause it's, it looks kind of like it's turning into Grecian ruins as, as the trees are growing up over the building, but just walking away was an amazing thing. I mean, it was painful the first two weeks as my son went in and, you know, he was my, my youngest son, Terry was conceived when we signed the lease. He was born 
my wife went into labor with him while she was working the door on a Saturday night. Uh, so he, he was, you know, 25 when we closed. That was, he just said, this is my world, dad. So I want to manage the, the liquidation of it. And he did a good job, but it was an amazing experience. Um, nothing but love at the end, as opposed to quote unquote, going out of business, which you know what very well may have happened if we tried to get through another winter. We nipped it in the bud and walked away on our own terms, which was cool. Just lock the door. Literally, that last night, three, 330 covers, all kinds of people hanging out, not crying, you know, dumping, drinking all the cognac behind the bar, opening all the champagne, locking that door and being the last two people in the parking lot and looking up at the moon. And my wife said, Remember the first time we did this? And I said, Holy shit. Unbelievable, but it was it was the way we did it. So I'm I'm kind of proud of that. Sure, it should be. Didn't mean I didn't owe a lot of money when I walked away. <laughs> it just meant that I walked away. Yeah. You know, there there are there are mechanisms in America for dealing with that. Ask our president; he knows. Well, my first, my last night at the Canal House um, uh, was inspiring. Um, I, the table in the kitchen sat 12 people, and most of them were chef friends of mine from the other side of the river, um, also hotel people. And um, and I remember putting down the last plate that I prepared. The last entree that I prepared went to my friend John Leckie, who owns El Express in uh, Wappingers Falls. And I put it down, and I said, John, this is the last plate I'll be serving out of this restaurant in front of 12 people. And I said, what I'm very most proud about is that my first plate is equal to my last plate. I've had a successful 51 years of satisfaction that way. But I, 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 was, ready, I, was, ready, I was ready to close because 15 years before was when I presented the whole deal a 12-page um, proposal to the Canal Society about taking over the property. And uh, Isn't that when you, is that when you started Chefs on Fire around that time, about 15 years before? Two, 2000, Chefs on Fire. But we were already serving downstairs um, a, a bistro-style menu. But I ended up with um, three restaurants on the one roof, Mikey O and his Japanese restaurant, fine Japanese restaurant, um, the bistro, Chefs on Fire, and the upstairs, my restaurant. And each one had their own chefs, all wonderful people. And plus, you know, I just kept going back to the bank doing all these things. Um, the New York store was a, was a, a beautiful store, all New York products. And I still have the database to create another New York store, but not in this day and age. Um, you know, having also three overnight accommodations, all with jacuzzi bats, um, uh, three of them uh, having f five overnight accommodations, three of them with full kitchens. So, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of accomplishment over the years, but, um, and then the banks started to get in close and um and but they were very amenable they they were they didn't want to see me close and they tried to do as much as they possibly could 
um, in bringing my mortgage to them. My mortgage was a ridiculous 8,000 a month and they brought it down to 5,000. I needed to go down to 3,000. Um, You're David smiling at 8,000 a month. <laughs> eight? Yeah, good Lord. Did you work with a local bank? Yeah, Ultra Savings. Yeah, Ultra Savings, same thing with me. They didn't want us to close. Uh, they said we do whatever you we'll do whatever we can do. I said, well, thank they you. They what? They said we'll do whatever we also can do. They were, very, they were very helpful. Yeah, they were great. They were great because yeah. they were still with that personality that they knew you, you know. But it was good. It was a good move. I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 2015, um, I closed, um, and um, and the the fact was, I had all great intentions of uh, existing with. The, the development of the building for as many years as it might take. I was, you know, I should have been caretaker. I should have been project manager. Um, but they have done many things that are off the wall. Um, and plus, the, when I handed over the keys um, at the closing, I, my daughter and myself were just like ecstatic. You know, we're going back. I said, let's meet at the house and I'll show you where the dehumidifiers are. I'll show you where everything is. And when, when we got back, there was one this one guy who um, just turns me off. Um, as, anyway, we got back to the house and uh, there was a, a, a locksmith truck outside. They had changed all the locks and said that there was a conflict of interest for me to be involved at all with the house. But I lived right behind it, and I still do. I maintain that property. I'm not there as much as I should be, um, and I'm hoping to move out soon. Um, I'm living at the school that I'm teaching but, at. But you're a free man now. I'm a free man. Other than the weight that I have for all this furniture, you were smart, Rick, and... Um, getting, you know, having a big party at the end. I really wanted that big party with the canal house. Oh, I wanted, we, had a dinner, we had a dinner service, but it ended up nobody yeah. wanted to go home. It was a problem. Well, what happened with all the furniture and and oh, that might be, yeah, my son had a um, did a sale. He he he. There you go. Did a two week sale. Although well, I, I still have, we still have a lot of it. Friends have a lot. As a matter of fact, if you want to see my furniture. Go right across the street to the Eggs Nest. They bought a ton of my stuff. A lot of my because we did those handmade uh, Thai art table. We got the Thai art paper and acrylic that onto the tables. The Eggs Nest has a bunch of them. The other one who has them is um, Liz Ryan at her uh, Hudson Valley Draft Cider, her little cafe. We had those oak. We had a giant oak tree fall when we were going into the restaurant. We turned it into three 10 to twelve foot banquettes that are like four inches thick. Uh, Liz Ryan bought those. So our, uh, we go to places sometimes. I'm like, oh, remember that? That was old table D14 right there. <laughs> well, these, these these guys went into the canal house and they stripped it all and they um, they uh, asked me to dismantle everything, take everything out of there. And the kitchen was the hardest part, tearing that apart because it wasn't part of my original proposal to them. Um, and uh, so. Anyway, I have three trailer truck loads of furniture um, in storage right now. And I just paid a visit to an auction house up in Catskill yesterday. Uh, and I have also started to put stuff in that auction house. 
um, coming up the 29th of this month. There'll be a, some items from the Canal House. Man, I don't know what else. Adorable. <laughs> Lo lovely. Well, if this COVID thing ever gets into the place where we can have reasonable sized gatherings, like I said, we are doing reasonable sized gatherings in restaurants with partitions between tables and stuff, but really? we should try to, we should try to do a little, you know, a little team cook uh, pop-up. We just got to find the right place, you know, to do a weekend. I like that. It's fun, I you know? I like that. Intrinsic is a production of Forge Collective, an alliance of creators for radical honesty. Many thanks to John Notar for contributing original music. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and consider making a tax-deductible donation at forgeartcollective.org. Thank you for listening, and tune back in in two weeks.